Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. You'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. In July of 2000, there was a curious headline that appeared in an Argentinian newspaper. It says, Police seeks a man who inherited $6 million but doesn't know it. This article was about a man by the name of Thomas Martinez, a 67-year-old homeless man who had inherited $6 million from his recently deceased wife, but he had no idea. You see, Thomas had been married to his wife some 40 years earlier, only for a very short period of time before he left her. He abandoned her, and he took to the streets. They had no children. Their divorce was in process, but never really finalized. So, after years, she inherited this fortune from her family. But because they had no children, and because their divorce had never been finalized, Thomas Martinez was the sole next of kin. He was a millionaire, and he had no idea. Martinez had apparently ended up on the streets in 1977 in order to evade a charge of check fraud. And while he was there in the streets, life was hard. It was difficult, the life of panhandling and living under bridges and, and just kind of asking for money or digging for food ended up resulting in him um, getting into alcohol and cocaine. He became a drug addict, a substance abuser. When news of his inheritance went out, the police began to search for him. Old family members, old friends, people like that sought him out. Even his brothers hired private investigators to search for him, but they were never able to track him down. At one point, they got very close. They, were, they made it to the city where he was living. They were talking with street vendors and beggars, and they found a location where he was known to be at. And as the police were asking questions of the people who were there, somebody caught sight of Martinez. They said, there he is. So Martinez stops, he looks, and he takes off running because he's afraid they're out to get him for check fraud or for substance abuse. And so this 67-year-old homeless man takes off running, and he hides. He, he makes it away from him. He gets away. He doesn't know. He's, he's running away from some of the best news that he could ever get. Instead, he's thinking that they're bringing bad news. Martinez got away, and they never found out what happened to him. He was never seen again. You know, some people said that he had moved to Brazil. Some people said that he went to Peru. Other people said that he died in a street fight and was buried in a mass grave. But no one really knows for sure. He was just gone. His inheritance was never awarded. You know, of all the stories that I've heard regarding unclaimed inheritances, this one has to be maybe the saddest of all. I mean, this is not just some regular guy who's, who has a fairly decent life that's just kind of missing out on a few years of excessive wealth. I mean, this is a guy who lived a miserable existence. This is a guy who struggled and found no hope. This is a guy who lived in despair, and he missed out on life transformation for a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. You know, we cringe at stories like this one, but do you realize that they're far more prevalent than we think they are? 
Now, I'm not talking about these stories of the down and out receiving unclaimed inheritances. What I'm talking about are people like you and me who fail to see and live in the reality that we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance that is worth far more than millions of dollars. We have this gift, this priceless treasure that's available to us right now, today. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, in Christ, we have a guaranteed inheritance. And yet, how often do we go through life as those who have no joy, those who have no hope, those who have no encouragement, those who have no future, those who have no destiny, those who are just poor and needy and weak and despairing and lifeless, some sort of drones who suffer for the sake of Christ with no hope? Well, this morning's text in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, are going to challenge our notions of misery and spiritual poverty that we so often live in. It will take our eyes off of the blinders of our current situations, our current circumstances, whatever they are, no matter how hard they are, and set them upon something greater, something higher, something above. Paul's message to us from Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, is a call. It's a call to praise God that all who are in Christ have a guaranteed inheritance. Praise God that all who are in Christ have a guaranteed inheritance. Let's read the passage together. It says, In him, in Christ, we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in this passage, Paul calls us to praise God for this guaranteed inheritance that is ours right now in Christ. And he gives us two reasons that we can be certain, that we can be sure that this is ours. That it will not fade, that it will not go away, that we do not need to live in fear. And the first reason that we can be certain of our inheritance in Christ is because God has purposed it. You know, one of the greatest blessings to studying and meditating on the doctrine of God's sovereignty is the comfort and assurance that we have in knowing that God has a perfect plan for all of history, for all the world, for all of his creation. And as part of his creation, you and I have that same hope, that God has a plan for the history of our lives as well. Despite your current 
situation, despite your struggles, despite your pain, despite the hurt that you might be enduring right now, despite the, the seeming hopelessness and obstacles and failures and sin that you are encountering right now, that you are dealing with, either sin that you've committed or sin that's been done upon you, you can rest assured, you can rest confident that if you are in Christ, truly in Christ, then this has been intended for your good. You don't have to live in fear of an uncertain and hopeless future. It is guaranteed. You can trust in the sure and steady promise that God's plan is good and that whatever hardships that you are encountering right now, that you're dealing with, what you're facing, it is worth it. Friends, it's worth it. In verse 11, Paul says, In Christ... The Son, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, God the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His, God the Father's, will. If you are in Christ, if you are united to Him by faith, if Christ is your life, your identity, your hope, the one you are trusting in and living for, then you have obtained an inheritance. But it starts with being in Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be in Christ. It means to live in Christ, in the sphere of Christ. Our reality is in Christ. And I used the illustration of the boy in the plastic bubble or an astronaut or a deep-sea diver. That as they live in those suits that they wear, they are free to engage the culture and the world around them. They can exist within those environments with hope, with life, because they live in that, in that bubble or in that suit, whatever it is. But if they step outside of it, if they try to live in that environment, apart from that suit, that sphere that they live in, they will die. There is no life. There is no hope. But in Christ, the sphere of Christ, there is life. He is what identifies us. Those who are in Christ, who live in Christ, who live in order to obey and, and live for Christ, they receive the blessings of life in Christ. Blessings that we've seen so far like election and adoption and grace and understanding of God's will and reconciliation to God. And here we see an inheritance. It says those who are in Christ have obtained an inheritance. This is not something that they've earned or achieved. It was obtained. It was received. This is a passive word. This is not something that you earn or work for. It is something that is given to you. I mean, literally, this word means to be allotted, to be appointed to it. You are chosen. It's another word for chosen. Well, chosen or allotted to what? And that's where you have to look at surrounding context to understand what he means by what are you allotted to. And in verse 5, we see adoption as co-heirs with Christ. In verse 14, to an inheritance. In verse 18, to an inheritance. In, in chapter 5, verse 5, an inheritance. As a result of being a chosen son or daughter of God, we have received an inheritance, a future reward. Now, we all get inheritances, right? Do you understand what an inheritance is? Okay? Does anybody work for, strive after, and achieve by their own effort an inheritance? 
Not unless you're a gold digger, right? Who just kind of wormed your way into someone's last will and testament, right? If you're not a gold digger, then you, you basically, you were given that, right? And you were given it based upon two things, right? Either because that person is benevolent, right? Like they might give the, to a charity or because you have had a relationship with that person. They are the benefactor. It belongs to them. But because of the relationship that you have with them, they choose to give it to you. Oftentimes it's familial, right? That you are a son or a daughter or a grandchild. Even if you're adopted, it's a son or daughter. It's given to you. Well, God is both benevolent and we have a relationship with him through Christ so that we as adopted sons and daughters of God in Christ have been allotted an inheritance. It has been given. This is a future reward, a future inheritance that we have already obtained. Look at that. Do you notice that it's past tense? In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Past tense, meaning it's ours. Now, it's guaranteed. You've already received it. This inheritance, this future reward is already ours in Jesus Christ. And though we have not received it fully and we won't completely and fully and finally receive it until the fullness of time, according to verse 10, we can be certain that it is ours. And why? Because the will has already been drawn up. Right? The will has already been drawn up. Your name is written there as a beneficiary. God has guaranteed it. Well, okay, well, how do we know? How can we be sure that God won't take it away? I mean, if he wrote my name on there, then he could take my name off. Why? How do I know that this is guaranteed? How can I be sure that this really will be mine, that it will be worth it? How do I know for certain that I have this future reward? Well, Paul gives us three reasons right here in verse 11. First of all, this inheritance is guaranteed because God has predestined it. It's predestined. In him we have obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined. Paul's not speaking here of goals or wishful thinkings of God's desired outcome that's a bit uncertain that he's working for, but he doesn't know whether or not he'll be able to achieve it. It's talking about a certain reality that God has predestined it. He has purposed it. The word means to foreordain. It means to mark out or designate beforehand. It means to predetermine, meaning it is already set. And how do we know? Because the name is already written. You are in the will. It's the same word that he uses there in verse 5, that in love he has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. How can we be sure that we have a predestined inheritance? Well, because we are predestined adopted sons and daughters of God. It is guaranteed because God has predestined it for his predestined children. And if that's not enough, if predestined is predestination is not enough, then we, that we can be sure that God has a guaranteed inheritance for us, then Paul gives us a second reason. He says we were predestined for an inheritance according to or because of God the Father's 
purpose. Now, we've already seen a phrase like this twice in this passage that we've been going over. It's there in verse 5. We saw it again in verse 9. Now, in those two verses, Paul used a particular word for purpose that kind of hits upon God's good pleasure. That God set this plan, God set this purpose in motion. He has this purpose according to his good pleasure. It draws upon God's affections, his heart. God was pleased to do it. Here, in verse 11, the word for purpose focuses on God's will or his resolve to achieve his plan. It's the idea of a resolute will, a determination that God has elected, he has chosen, he has made this decision of his own volition to do it. So when God purposes something, he does it according to his good pleasure and according to his determined will. And just in case you might be thinking, well, just because God is resolved to achieve his purposes doesn't mean that it will all go according to his plan. Paul provides us with a third reason right here in verse 11 that we can be certain that our inheritance is guaranteed. He says, not only did God predestine it according to his good pleasure and his resolute will, but it says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this word works here is not an attempt. It's not an uncertain striving. Like we might work to, I don't know, be elected as governor of Illinois. That's a bit uncertain, right? This is, a, this is an effective working. That God works effectively to achieve his purposes. He has affected the outcome. It is steady. It will happen. That's what he means. And then there's this word, counsel, that God affects everything according to the counsel of his will. This word, counsel, believe it or not, is another word for, anybody, any takers? Purpose. God's plan. It's yet another word, a third word for God's purpose. Now this time, it refers to the intellectual decision God made based upon his knowledge. All right? The God in his wisdom, God in his knowledge, purposed these things. And when you put all three of them together, what you see is that God purposes all things with his whole being, with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his will. Every part of God in his sovereign plan, he is devoted to. And this is huge, guys. This changes everything. When we think about God and his work, his purposes in us, God is not some cold and distant, just angry tyrant, right? He's not just, he's not like the the Greek gods who are just up there messing with you. I'm going to make your life hard just because I can and I want to, just to see what you'll do. That is not the way God is presented in Scripture. Nor is history working itself out by cold or impersonal fate as if everything is determined and yet meaningless as a byproduct of some heartless, mindless, predetermined destiny. It's not a matter of faith that you, fate that you just can't, you know, can't deviate from. It's just going to happen and that's what it is and there's just nothing that you can do about it. It's just going to run its course. 
And nor are we trapped in some karmic cycle of cause and effect that what goes around comes around. We are not governed by natural laws of morality that suggest that if your life is good, it's because you're a good person, that you've done something in a previous life or a previous situation, and now God is blessing you. And if things are really bad for you right now, well, it's because you've done something wrong. You're a bad person. The hardships that you're dealing with right now, whatever they are, are a direct result of, of your own sin or, or just the fact that you're just not as good. That's not what the Bible says when it talks about God's predestination, when it talks about God's purposes. No, what Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 tells us is that the good, wise, and sovereign God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who governs all things according to his will is bigger and higher than you could ever imagine. Ever. And yet... This sovereign God of the universe is intimate and personal, engaging with you at the most intimate level. He blesses, he chooses, he sanctifies, he redeems, he forgives, he adopts, he loves. He does all of these things, blessing after blessing after blessing, reconciling, giving an inheritance, intimately involved in your life. The creator of the universe the governor of all there is interacts with you on a personal level. God is absolutely sovereign, electing, predestining according to his purpose that he effectively works all things according to the counsel of his will. And yet this sovereign God is intimate and personal relating to his children with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his will, bringing forgiveness, communication, inheritance, and hope. You know, regardless of what your current setting and circumstances are, no matter how easy or difficult you find your life to be right now, no matter what you're dealing with at any level whatsoever, hardships, challenges, kids are crazy, you don't know what's going on. No matter what that is, no matter what you're dealing with, if you are truly in Christ, take comfort. Take comfort that no matter, in the fact that the God of the universe governs all things according to his will, but yet he has guaranteed you an inheritance, an inheritance that is grounded in his eternal purposes. He will not fail. And so in verse 11, Paul gives us the ground of our inheritance, the plan or purpose of God. In verse 12, he tells us the goal of that inheritance, that in him we were predestined for an inheritance so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The goal of this purpose that you see right here is that we would hope in Christ to the praise of God's glory. Now some people, you know, if you read commentaries, if you listen to sermons, you know, some people will interpret we who were first to hope in Christ as referring to the very first Christians. Like Paul is saying, we were the first to hope in Christ, you are not. 
Okay, he's talking to first-generation Christians here in Ephesus, but he's saying, no, we were the first hope, you were not. And so people take that to mean that Paul is referring to Jewish Christians over and against Gentile Christians, right? And they look at chapter 2 and this, the, how the gospel breaks down these barriers between Jew and Gentile, and they say, okay, you see that? Paul is talking about Jewish Christians, he's talking about them, and then over here in verse 13, when he switches to the pronoun you, now he's talking to these Gentile Christians in Ephesus. But is that really what Paul means? Is that really what he's saying? Jewish Christians over against Gentile Christians. I get, I, I'm not convinced at all. Okay, I'm, I'm not convinced because up to this point, in these 14 verses that we've looked at so far, Paul has used the pronouns we or us 11 different times. And if we just look in terms of context, the most natural understanding of who we or us is is found in verse 1. Paul and the saints who are in Ephesus. Right? That most accurately seems to contextually to be the the best understanding of who they are. Okay? And then as it has gone along, you know, he's if we were to hold that we, when he says we or us, he's referring to Jewish Christians, that would require that every time we read it preceding this verse here, that he's referring only to Jewish Christians. So only the Jewish Christians were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Only the Jewish Christians are the ones that, that God you know, is going to present to himself holy and blameless. Only they were adopted. Only they, you know, so on and so forth, were forgiven, were redeemed, were, I mean, you name it, only they were. Oh, but it's okay because in verse 13 we see that, oh, you, you, you Gentile Christians, well, you guys were given, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, so it's okay. Oh, and by the way, in verse 14 you have the same inheritance, so that's okay. No, that's a much harder reading. And it also requires that we assume that there were no Jewish Christians in Ephesus, Right? that the church was comprised completely of Gentile Christians, which I'm not going to argue for because if you read Acts and you read Paul's journeys throughout the Mediterranean, he's constantly being followed around by Jews, Jewish Christians, Judaizers. And I don't think that they're just from Jerusalem just kind of following all, all over the place. I think he's encountering them wherever he goes. Or it requires a lot of just pronoun gymnastics, right, that, that we're just going to assume that in 1 through 11... He's speaking of everyone. Now here in verse 12, he's speaking only to Jewish Christians. And in verse 13, he's speaking only to Gentile Christians. And then back to 14, he's speaking to everybody. Okay? Now, again, the only reason I mention that is because if you read commentaries or you listen to sermons or things like that, that is an issue that comes up. It's difficult to understand what it means. But there's significance. There's significance for you in this. Okay? So hang in there. I think a better way to understand verse 12 is that it includes everyone. What he is saying here is that we who hoped in Christ beforehand, that's what the word literally means, hoped beforehand, that we might be to the praise of his glory. Before what? We hoped in Christ beforehand, before what? Well, I think that the best contextual evidence is the fullness of time in verse 10. And so what Paul is saying here is that he's speaking of every person who has, who is, and who will hope in Christ before the day of Christ's return when God will sum up all things in Christ. Paul is including us in this purpose. 
those who have hoped in Christ before it's too late, that God has given us an inheritance. God has predestined us. God is doing all of this work. God is leading us. God is the goal. He is giving us hope so that we might live to the praise of his glory. You see that? You are included in this. You are those who are called to hope in Christ. And then he says that they might be to the praise of his glory. Literally, we are to be for the praise of his glory. We are to be. Guys, that's an indication of existence. That's an indication of purpose. You exist for the glory of God. You exist to praise God for his glory. This is why you were here. The reason why God blesses and chooses and adopts and redeems and forgives and gives an inheritance is this. This is why we hope in Christ that the chief end of man really is to know God and to enjoy him forever. That really is the goal, to seek God's glory. This is the intended result of all that God has done for us in this passage so that we might live for the praise of his glory. God has purposed all of this in our lives for our good and for his glory. Guys, that is huge. It changes the way we read passages. This, is, this changes the way we think about God. How could we read all that this sovereign and transcendent God has done for us in Christ and be unaffected by it? How can we read all that God has done for us in Christ in the purpose of our existence and make much of ourselves? To think that life is about me and my glory rather than his. How can we read all that God has done and coldly and and just harshly use it to bolster our theological knowledge. Like that's all that it's about. I mean, how could, how could we read this doctrinal truth of this passage? I mean, it ought to overwhelm us. The response should not be cold theology, but joyous and hope-filled praise. I mean, this is God's intention. This is God's purpose for these truths, that the God who governs the entire universe according to his counsel of his will, his good and perfect purposes, blesses, loves, saves, adopts, redeems, forgives, grants an inheritance to those who hope in Christ. And if that's the case, how could we then fear that we might lose our inheritance? How can we live in the fear of an uncertain future, of an uncertain hope? How can we fear that it, that it might go away or that somehow it might not be worth it? That it might not be worth the sacrifice. That it might not be worth giving up the petty earthly treasures that we cannot keep to gain that which we can never lose. How is it that we can fail to live in light of these good and precious promises, promises that are not just ours one day in the future? Like if I just tough it out long enough, or if I just pray that Jesus comes back now, I won't have to endure this horrible life, and then I can have that. They are ours now. How can we look at this passage and not be comforted and not hope and not find joy, and not praise God for it. 
Friends, if that's you, if you're here right now and you're just struggling to find joy and hope, if you're struggling to praise God right now when you read these truths, I think you need to ask yourself some questions as to why. What's keeping me from finding joy in this passage? What's keeping me from just being flooded with praise to God for what he has done, for his wisdom, for his good pleasure, for his purposes? What thoughts, what desires, what circumstances are preventing you from finding hope in this passage? Friends, identify those very, very particularly. You will be helped by this. And then repent of those and cling to this truth. We praise God for his purposed inheritance in Christ, an inheritance that is yours by faith in him. And so the first of two reasons that we can be sure of our inheritance in Christ, that it is guaranteed, is because God has purposed it. And the second, and again, there's only two, is that our inheritance is guaranteed because we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's saying the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Again, we see the emphasis on being in Christ. That this inheritance, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, is ours only through hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. Friends, we live in a day that questions truth. This idea of, of the word of truth is just, it's lost on us in our daily lives. We live in a world where it's easy to create alternate versions of the truth and just kind of live a little bit in a fantasy world rather than in reality. It's easy and convenient and sometimes very, very beneficial for us to not tell the truth, to lie, to fudge, to alter. Truth is not held in high regard today. And so we lie, we deceive, we perceive truth as optional or even we just chalk it up to unknowable. But that isn't the case with God. In Scripture, God is himself truth. He is truth. He's the standard of truth. He's the author of truth. Right? We have truth. We can know truth because God is truth. God always tells the truth. God's people were recall, were, were re, rely, had to rely upon him as truth over and above their perceptions and feelings of events and situations. They were called to look to God as truth, as standard, because God knows the truth. So we don't just, in our own wisdom and our own perception of this world, just try to figure it out on our own and determine truth as we want to. We look to God. God is truth. In the New Testament, Jesus is the truth incarnate. He is truth in flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He promised to send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, to lead his people to worship God in spirit and truth. And here in this passage, Paul is saying that the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ, this only way of salvation, is the word of truth. This is truth. You can know it. 
The true God, the God of truth, the standard of truth has sent his son, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect and sinless life of a complete obedience to God and to lay that life down as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sin, every sin, sin of rebellion, sin of hatred, sin of rejection of the truth, all of it. All, and he did that to offer life, to offer hope, to offer the blessings that we have been talking about in verses 3 through 14, if we would repent and believe the gospel of our salvation. These are ours. And friends, do you understand the truth? Do you understand that truth? That God, that the God who created and sustained you, sustains all things, including your life, made you for his glory. This sovereign God of the universe made you to have a relationship with him. But you have rejected him. You have hated him. You have spurned him. You try to live life for yourself as if this is my world, I'm God. We've rejected him. But despite that, God sent his son to do what you could not do, to sacrifice himself on your behalf, taking upon God's wrath, raising from the dead in order to show that God's wrath has been satisfied, that he is God, that all will be raised, all will stand in judgment before him. That that is the direction, the course of the entire cosmos. The entire universe is going that way. And that in Christ and in Christ alone, there is an inheritance. There is hope. There is future. Friends, repent and believe the gospel. Hear and believe the gospel. Now here's why Paul switches from using that pronoun we to the pronoun you. Okay, we in 12, you in 13. This is why. Again, he's not distinguishing between Jew and Gentile. The you in this passage, when we would understand it from context, is who? Paul's readers. The saints who are in Ephesus. He's saying, listen, guys, when I talk about salvation, when I talk about God's purposes and plans for the world, when I talk about all that God is doing to bless his people to himself, I'm not talking generally about things that are sort of out there, things that are an abstraction, things that are just what God does in general with Christians over there, I am talking about what he is doing to and in and for and through you. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, These things that I've been talking about are now yours in Christ. They are yours intimately and personally applied to you. Do you get that? You're here as a reader of this text. Paul is speaking to you. You can know, you can be certain that this guaranteed inheritance is yours. It is yours, really and truly yours. So live in that reality. These are not distant ideas. These are yours when you hear and believe the gospel. And yet, I think there's another reason why you see this switch in pronoun from we to you. Again, asking a question here. 
Who is completing all of the actions or doing all the activities that we see in chapter th- or in verse 3 through 11? Who is blessing? Who is electing? Who is adopting? Who is loving? Who is sanctifying? Who is forgiving? Who is redeeming? Who is making his will known? Who is reconciling all things to himself? Who is giving an inheritance? Who is sealing with the Holy Spirit? God is. God's doing that. Right? Now, in who's doing the action in the first part of verse 13? You. You heard and you believed. Not only does Paul want his readers to understand that these blessings are intimately applied and currently available to them, but he wants them to understand that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are completely compatible. There is no discrepancy. There's no issue. They go hand in hand. God elects and he predestines and he calls us to repent and believe. We are not mindless robots or puppets but living, breathing, thinking beings who act within the sovereign and authoritative plan of God. We we live as under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Your response to the sovereign and effectual call of God is real. And so repent and believe the gospel. And so after Paul mentions our response for the inheritance in Christ, he then focuses on the present reward of our inheritance in Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. Pick up in verse 13, that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, at the same time we were hearing and believing the gospel, God was actually sealing us with his Holy Spirit. At the same time, we shouldn't look at this and argue for a chronology here, like there's an ordering of things. Literally, this verse reads, Having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in him also, and having believed in him also, you were sealed. They take place at the exact same time. It's equally past tense. We should understand them as happening simultaneously. Not this, then this, then this. He's saying, as you were hearing and as you were believing, God was sealing. And though our inheritance in Christ is a future reward, we are now able by faith in Christ to draw upon it through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's available to us right now. Now, the current benefit of our future reward is the Holy Spirit himself. Does you get that? He's not talking about some distant future reward saying, hey, just wait for it. Just buck up, grit your teeth until then. He's saying, guess what? As a guarantee that that's the future, you get me. The third person of the Trinity. Three in one. The Holy Spirit's God. You get that, right? He's God. He's not some impersonal power. It's not just God's sort of breath, God's arm, something like that. This is God, a distinct 
personal being living and working in you right now. It's amazing. And look at the way he describes the Holy Spirit. He, he gives kind of three descriptions. First, he refers to the Holy Spirit as a seal. Do you guys get what a seal is? A seal is a sign or a marker of, of ownership, of authenticity, right? Think about a cattle brand, right? You brand your cattle in order to say, that's my cow. Or think about a royal signet. You know, in the old days where, when, when a, a king makes an edict, when he, he makes a law or something and he wants that to be distributed, they would know that it was from the king because they would put wax on the document. He would put his signet in there as a seal, as a guarantee that this is my authority. My authority goes with that. He is, this is mine. It's authentic. You can trust it. The Holy Spirit is our identification that we belong to God, that we are under His care and His protection. The Holy Spirit verifies that we are children of God. You know, in the Old Testament, the sign and seal of the people of God was circumcision. Guys, circumcision. I'll try this any day, right? I mean, think about it. Cut, you know, just this cut made in the flesh with hands. But it was always intended to point to something future. It's always intended to point forward to circumcision of the heart, to a new heart and a new spirit, to the law of God written upon our hearts. The fulfillment of this sign or seal, this Old Testament sign or seal in the New Testament, it's not baptism. It's being sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what replaces it. That's what it's pointing to. And how do you know that you are a Christian? Have you ever asked yourself the question? Have you ever wondered, am I truly a follower of Christ? The easiest way to answer that question from this text is, do I have the Holy Spirit? Can I see the Holy Spirit working in my life? Can I see him leading me towards holiness, towards faith? Am I becoming more like Christ as a result of his work in my life? That's what the Holy Spirit does, you know. He doesn't just kind of empower you to do really fancy things that really kind of hold people in awe and wonder. The Holy Spirit's there to change your heart. If you can see the Holy Spirit at work in your life, then you can be sure that you have been sealed and that you belong to him. Second description that Paul gives of the Holy Spirit, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit was promised to God's people. He says he's the promised Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, God promised through prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. That was a future event. Hadn't yet happened. This would happen one day. He would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. Jesus promised in Luke 24 and John 14 through 16 and Acts 1, for example, that he would send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we see the fulfillment as, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' followers. In Acts 10, we see it happening to the Gentile Christians as well. We see this continuing as you work through the New Testament. And what is, what's happening here is that century old, centuries-old promises that God had made to his people, are now being fulfilled. That you are a recipient of the things that guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel 
and Zechariah had only longed for. These are yours. You are the beneficiary of all of those promises that these faithful men had only hoped for. They're yours. Guys, do you not see that as a gift? Marvel at the fact that you are a recipient of God's promise as you receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, not only is the Holy Spirit a seal and the Holy Spirit was promised, but he also says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. And the word that he uses here, this guarantee means a deposit. It means a down payment, a pledge, a first installment. When you make a down payment on a house, what you're saying is, I promise to pay for this house fully. Right? This is my first installment towards many payments until this thing is completely mine. Right? You get what Paul is saying here. In Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as a deposit, as a first installment of the inheritance that we will receive in Christ. He is only the beginning. You see the weight of this. We've received the Holy Spirit as a down payment. I mean, can you believe this? That there is more to come. There is more than just receiving the Holy Spirit. There is more. And what is more? I mean, think about that. If you have given, if God has given you Himself, what more is there to receive? Because this is infinite blessing. You can't even. We have. God himself living in us. The Holy Spirit is God. If you are in Christ right now, you have right now the Holy Spirit in you to point you to Christ. The Holy Spirit to transform your life. The Holy Spirit to free you from sin. The Holy Spirit to sanctify you completely. The Holy Spirit to make you more like Christ. So we want to make a big deal out of the flashy stuff that he might do? No. And if God has given himself as the guarantee of a future inheritance, what do you ultimately think the reward is? That future reward. What do you think that that ultimately is? Mansions in heaven? Streets of gold? Get out of hell free card? Freedom from the consequences and shame of my sin? Get to see my dear beloved grandmother in heaven? Guys, those are all good things. But they are not ultimate things. They're not. The ultimate reward that we get based upon the down payment God has given us is God himself. God is the eternal reward in full and complete measure. What a blessing. We get God. The God who has blessed us with life and breath and our very being. The God who we had hated and rejected. The God who took on flesh to purchase our redemption. 
that God, who, may, who has given us Himself as a means of making us holy and blameless before Him, the God who has given us Himself as a deposit of our future reward, the ultimate inheritance that we receive, the ultimate hope, the ultimate joy that we can have in heaven is God Himself, an eternally reconciled, glorious life with God forever. Friends, marvel at that. That is not something to dismiss and say, well, that's kind of a bummer. I was, I was hoping to be able to fly. And what God has begun in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We who are truly in Christ can be sure that we will acquire possession of it. That's what he says. Because we are God's possession. Because God is in the process of redeeming us. He has redeemed us and he will save us completely, not just from the consequences of our sin, but sin itself. That which has separated us from God will be removed and we will be with him in glory. He will present us holy and blameless before him. The ultimate purpose of all of these blessings that we have seen from verses 3 through 14, all of the blessings that God has lavished upon those who are in Christ culminates in worship to the praise of His glory. Friends, how could these truths not reorient your life? How can they not change what you're living for? How can they not change the way you think about your present circumstances? I mean, when you think about the promise that you have an eternal inheritance awaiting you, how could this not change what you strive after? You're actually knowing that this eternal reward is yours change the way that you think about things like possessions or achievements, or relationships, or the way that you spend your time, your energy, and your money. And when you look at God's cosmic, history-encompassing, universal plan to redeem His people in Christ, how could that not change your plans for your future? How can this not change the way you think about your current struggles, your current situations, knowing that God's plan is actively and powerfully at work and will be accomplished. How can you look at that and say there's no hope? This can't be changed. This can't be reconciled. This can't be worked out. How has hearing and believing the gospel affected you? I mean, can you see change in your life? Can you clearly see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you? And if not... Friends, what are you basing your faith on? How does knowing that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a first installment of your future reward change the way that you view your life? How should it change the way you respond to your difficulties? How should it change the way you fight against sin? How does it change the way you fight in the fight of faith? 
How does knowing that God will bring it to completion change the way you view security? What you're ultimately trusting in, what you're looking to as assurance in your life. Do you realize that all of the best things that we can receive, whether that be financial security or relationships or whatever it is that you find security in, your image, the way people view you, I mean, you name it, just pale in comparison to God. If God is guarding you until the day of Christ, why would you seek to find security in anything else? Friends, this ought to lead us to joy, hope-filled, just overwhelming, love-outpouring joy to the praise of His glory. And so, praise God that all who are in Christ have a guaranteed inheritance. I pray that you would receive that, that you would believe that, that you would go out and live in light of that. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the work that you have done in Christ. And we thank you that though we are undeserving, you have made it possible for us to be reconciled to you. Father, forgive us for failing to see our need of Christ. Forgive us for the despair and hopelessness that we have in thinking only about our current situations, our current comforts, our current circumstances, rather than your purpose and plan for us that will culminate in us being with you forever. Forgive us for failing to believe that you are at work in us, for grieving the Holy Spirit with the way that we live our lives. Forgive us for making much of ourselves and seeking our own purposes and ambitions and and trying to find fulfillment and security in things that are less than you. Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, that you have done what we cannot, and that through your blood and your body, through your resurrection, we have hope. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are alive and at work in us, that we are the beneficiaries of these age-old promises. There is power for change. And Lord, I pray that we would live in light of that. May that change the way we think. May that change the way we speak. May that change our hearts. May it change the way we feel, the way we act. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.